This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. We'll continue our series in uh, Philippians for the good of one another, and we're wrapping up chapter 2 as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30 in a sermon that we're calling Examples of Living for the Good of One Another. Examples of Living for the Good of One Another. A text from today, it reminds us that this book that we've been studying is a letter, right? The letter, a letter to a group of people, the Christians who lived in the Roman colony of Philippi. Because typically in a letter, you share updates, or you share updates of your personal life along with updates of others. And we get a little bit of that today. Right? In the letters that I write, meaning birthday cards to the kids downstairs. I don't write any letters. I'm just writing, like, update the fun thing. Hey, I eat a lot of cake, right? Fun things like that. And throughout this letter, we've been seeing the exhortation of encouragement for the Philippians to live worthy lives of the gospel that was manifested in the life of Jesus. And now Paul is providing an update of himself along with his fellow brothers in Christ and co-workers. Timothy and Epaphroditus, where Paul tells us how they are exemplifying this manner of humility and obedience in Christ that we looked at uh, in the previous weeks in this letter. And we'll see three updates here. We'll see the updates of Timothy's future visits, visit Paul's status, and Epaphroditus' return. But Paul briefly gives us an update about his status, but mainly talks about uh, these two other co-workers, co-laborers, how they were two models of obedience of God, but a, self of, uh, a life of self-emptying and unity in one spirit, in one faith for the gospel. One of the updates from Paul from prison was about Timothy's future visit. Timothy was with Paul in Rome, not in Philippi. Right? Verse 19 says, Paul is wishing to send Timothy to Philippi. So Timothy can go encourage the believers and then return to Paul with a cheerful and happy update. Right? That's what the hope was from Paul. And we see the reason why Paul desires to send Timothy specifically to Philippi. Right? Paul trusts Timothy. He trusts Timothy to take care of the congregation in Philippi. He trusts him because of his genuine concern and his proven character. He trusts him. And uh, Paul does some calling out here while endorsing Timothy, right? He throws some shade um, in verse 21. Verse 20 says, For I have no one like him. Right? He's, he's equal to me. It's as if I was going myself. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for your well-being. For they all, here comes the shade, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. And he's calling out the believers in chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. It says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. 
The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And we see the comparison. Selfish ambition, impure motives, not sincere, versus genuine concern. Right? Genuineness is uh, difficult to, de- to detect, or maybe even impossible. Right? If I went to someone, hey, my name is Robin, I'm genuine, that just doesn't, that sounds fake. I don't know about that guy. And a sincere action could look identical to a genuine action, even when the action is preaching Christ. And the world sees the church as, as hypocrites. In other words, a bunch of fakes. But imagine if the opposite was true. Not people who are pretending to be perfect, pretending to uh, everything's okay, but a people known for being genuine. But here's the thing about being genuine. There's a cost, there's a fear, and there's a reward. See, the cost of being genuine is being known. Right? Genuineness leads to being known, which can be very terrifying, because being known means revealing the side that you want to be known, but then also revealing the side that you don't want to be known. Right? I want you guys to know this side of me. I don't want you guys to know this side. I don't want you guys to know that I feel unqualified up here. That I'm nervous up here. That I don't feel good enough, smart enough. Maybe funny enough, but not. (laughs) Because those things make me look a certain way. That goes against my pride. It makes me look less. But here's the thing, we can't be genuine if we don't accept the cost of being known. The word genuine is in our mission for small groups here at Redemption. Our small groups exist to create an environment for spiritual growth and genuine connection. And that genuine connection is achieved by a process of allowing others to see the real you through vulnerability and by listening. Right, that's true fellowship. The cost of being genuine is being known. It's a terrifying thing. And here's the fear. The fear of being genuine is believing that it is too costly to be known. Now, what if people knew who I really am? What I really struggle with? My faults, my past, my insecurities, my motives. Man, that can cost my job, my friends, man, that can cost my reputation. I can't afford it. It is too costly if people knew the real me. However, when we have convinced ourselves that we can't afford to be genuine because being known is too costly, then we've lost sight of what the gospel does for us and who Jesus is. Because when we understand 
And when we accept and understand the sinfulness of our hearts, the brokenness of our lives, the ugliness of our hearts, the more we understand and we, who we really are, the greater the good news becomes to us. One of my friends who have been uh, in uh, vocational ministry for a decade have been struggling with the genuineness of his faith as motives were unveiled in his heart. He was in an unhealthy spot spiritually for him to lead others well. Or the thought of him to step down from leadership, it just seemed too costly. That's not an option. But he did. He made the decision to step down as pastor, realizing the costly thing wasn't losing a position out of being genuine to himself, to his family, and to his church. But the costly thing was to push through artificially, ingenuously, at the expense of relationships and others with God. See, the cost of being genuine to yourself, to others, and to God outweighs the cost of being ingenuine because there's a reward. There's a reward of approaching God in genuineness and allowing the Spirit of God to transform you. It's allowing the Spirit of God to transform you. A God, he looks at the heart. And his desire is for his children to approach him, not in perfection, but in genuineness. And though inward transformation isn't always immediately outwardly seen, it most definitely means that the Spirit of God is growing you to be more like Jesus. That's one of the most encouraging things I think fellow believers could hear. I am growing to be more like Christ. And we can count on God's faithfulness and his commitment to us to transform us to be more like Christ through the work of the Spirit. I believe the refusal to be genuine is a cause and what contributes to the shallowness of churches. It contributes to the shallowness in small groups, in ministries, but most of all, our faith. If we don't come to God in genuineness, we're not letting God work in us and through us. He'll still work in you. But this is allowing, with our arms open wide, allowing the Spirit of God to work in. As one wise wise person told me, uh, Robin, I prefer kids' ministry versus adult ministry because kids don't feel the need to fake it. Kids training after service. <laughs> On my notes, it says insert plug for kids training here. The desire to be genuine is great, but it's not complete, right? Paul wasn't just highlighting Timothy's sincerity, but his genuine concern or care rooted in the love, rooted in love for the people of Philippi. Some of us have no issue being genuine, right? I I genuinely don't like you, right? We have no issue being genuine and yet not love others or God. 
At the, at the same time, we can't love without being genuine. We can't love without being genuine because Romans 12, 9 says, let love be genuine. And so in order for us to have a genuine concern for others, we must understand and we must seek the heart of Jesus. Who is a manifestation of love. Who is the example of love for others. But understanding his heart, understanding the heart of Jesus for others allows us to have a heart for others like Jesus. And allows us to seek the interest of Jesus. Right? Seeking the interest of Jesus is seeking the good of one another. Right? That's what our series has been about. Seeking the good of one another through humility, through obedience, through love. Seeking the interest of Jesus is living out the words of Jesus' command in Matthew 23, love your neighbor as yourself. But the good of one another demands more than us being real. It requires a continual process of ourselves, emptying ourselves through humility. It requires us to count others more significant than ourselves. These are the things of Christ seen in chapter 2. Count those who are younger. Count those who are older than you as more significant. Count those who, are, uh, those who have less or more income than you, count them as more significant. Count those who are struggling with sin or not suffering like you to count them more significant than you. but counting others more significant than you. And we're prone to, to see and to be attuned with the needs of others. Right? In order to see the needs of others, in order to see it, it starts with caring for others, caring for them in our hearts. It was the heart of Timothy that Paul knew and was confident about his character about his character and proven worth. A character that displayed genuine love through service of spreading and living out the gospel, living in relation to the gospel. And now we see Paul's status here. Paul is kind of explaining why he wants to send Timothy. Therefore, that's why Paul wants desiring to send Timothy for their sake and his sake. As they serve together as servants of Christ, as verse 1 says of chapter 1. And verse 24, we hear of Paul's update. Here it is. As soon as I see how it will go with me. A.K.A. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm waiting to figure it out myself. But he's not letting his circumstance change his heart and concern for others. But don't forget, Paul was in prison, and his update, his letter, is saying, yeah, I don't know about me, but love others. Don't forget Christ. Have a concern for others. Have love. Empty yourself. He said, I'm getting out of prison. I trust that the Lord will allow me to be there soon. He trusted the Lord. 
And he didn't let his circumstance define his love for others. His heart was still for others, even though he was in a prison cell. Paul trusted the Lord. He also trusted Timothy, who he had an affectionate relationship. Man, he loved him. Timothy, who exemplified the manner of living for the good of one another. Now let's look at Epaphroditus. It was necessary to send him back to Philippi. Epaphroditus was a Philippian, and he was to deliver and take care of Paul's physical and financial needs. Chapter 4, 18 shared a little bit about this. Paul says, I received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Why did Paul have needs? Because in the Roman prison, the need of a prisoner would be everything. It would be everything except the cell itself. All of Paul's needs had to be met by the church. And this is why Jesus highlights this in teaching, in his teaching in Matthew 25, caring for the imprisoned. And now the greatest missionary in the world is in prison. And his needs had to be met by his fellow brothers and sisters. The ministry is not isolated to just spiritual needs, but it's definitely meeting the physical needs of others as well. And what we do in the pantry the third Saturday of every month, we're passing out diapers, wipes, baby supplies, thanks to your generosity for those in need, right? What we do is setting aside 5% of our giving to assist with these physical needs in our community. Man, this is a ministry. This is a ministry that we've been called to minister as a church. Right? Not something that we do to make ourselves feel better. Right? Not, try, not doing this to trick them into something. Right? We're not trying to do a Jesus juke on them. But the aim is to be the hands and feet of Jesus through word and deed driven by genuine love. Right? Here's the update about him. He was seriously ill. And he was bringing suffering to Paul and the Philippians. He was distressed himself, not because he was sick, but because the people back at home knew about it. And he was distressed for them, not for himself. An example of how he was seeking the well-being of others. But because of God's mercy, though he was at a point of death, he was healed. And now Paul wants to send him back home. He wants to send him back home as healing and his return would bring mutual joy. And so he charged them to welcome him back with favor and love because of the risk that he took willing to seek and meet the needs of others. Where the text says he nearly died for the work of Christ, trying to bring this, these supplies, trying to meet the needs of Paul. 
Just like being known involves the cost, the work of Christ, though it looks different throughout the world and for every one of us, it involves a risk. That working for Christ isn't a convenient thing. It requires risk where, where God may be leading you. Maybe leading you out of a comfort zone to serve somewhere or, or to give financially. But it involves risk. Timothy and Epaphroditus embodied Paul's instructions to the Philippians by genuinely loving, by prioritizing the needs of others and then living in relation to the gospel. And they exemplified the behaviors that Paul had already urged them, urged the Philippians earlier in the letter. Where he says, have the mind, have this mind of Christ. Right, it goes back to that, have this mind of Christ. And I just want us to hear what he wrote before these examples came. Right, these examples are from Paul's exhortation, his commandment to, to do it this way, because this is who Jesus is. So just listen. Just listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As a son of God, Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, who was sinless, who was perfect in relation with God the Father, was willing to give up his life for you, for me, for us, we who have sinned against him, we have lied, judged, committed murder, adultery, we who care about our, our own needs versus the needs or wants of others, we who care about our external appearances and self-image versus our motives of the heart, we who have failed to live in obedience to our God. But if he was willing to give up himself to a point of death for a people like us, what does that say about the mind of Christ? What does that say about the heart of Christ? It says that his mind and his heart is set on us. His heart and mind is set on us. His heart and his mind is set on us. When we pray in the lobby at 9.30 every morning, 
the mind and heart of Jesus is set on us. When we gather here to worship, the heart and mind of Jesus is set on us. When we leave in our cars to go home, his heart and his mind is set on us. And when we lie in our beds, questioning who we are, what we're doing, feeling hopeless, feeling sad, feeling alone, feeling lost, feeling desperate. Even in that moment, the mind and heart of Jesus is set on you. Tim Keller says it better. The central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. The mind and the heart of Jesus is set on us. And so our response, our response ought to be a servant, a servant that has a mind and a heart that is set on him. A heart and a mind that is set on Jesus. Because if our walk with Christ is based on what we do, based on what we don't do, we will burn out. If it's based on what we do and what we don't do, we will not endure. We'll want to quit and drown in hopelessness. But a heart that is set on Him, but a mind having the mind of Christ, of his love for us. We'll serve him. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.